So thank you for joining us. This is Unapologetics. I appreciate you sticking with us here. We had some technical issues that delayed our recording a day. Um, but I think the, the subject matter we're going to get into tonight is, is pretty important. Um, so, Steph, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. This is actually my second thing I'm recording tonight. I just uh, wanted to tell you guys I just did a Glad Trad Q&A podcast with my friend Father David Nix, which will be out in a couple of weeks. So, yeah, if my brain is a little more useless than usual, I, I, I spent it all on his podcast. But I'll try my best. So, yeah, Steph is, is busy as always. I had a busy day myself yesterday and today. So we are uh, we're recording now and we'll get this out to you tomorrow. So we want to talk tonight about two interrelated subjects. Um, first, we want to discuss the tragedy in New Zealand, uh, the white nationalist shooter who killed 50 Muslims. Um, some of the lessons that we can take away from that. Um, what are the wrong lessons to take away from that? And what are the right lessons to take away from that? Because it seems most people are taking away the wrong lessons as one would expect. And then we're gonna use that to propel ourselves into a discussion about partially ecumenism, partially religious liberty, but a discussion on, on the multitude of religions and whether as Pope Francis said, God wills the multitude of religions. All right, sounds good. So. Christchurch. Um, do you want to start talking about this one or catch people up or do you want me? Yeah, I can. I mean, go for it. Yeah, there was um, a, sh <laughs> a national shooter, won't repeat his name um, because, you know, a lot of these people do it for the fame, whatever. I mean, I'm not, I don't believe in being censorious in these things, but um, he wrote this sort of manifesto, for lack of a better word, called The Great Replacement. And I read most of it. Um, and there's a lot I want to get into in there, but the, the basic overview is this, this white nationalist guy went in um, and shot up a mosque of innocent, you know, ostensibly innocent people um, and killed 50 Muslims who were praying at the mosque. Including uh, children. What's that? I'm sorry. Including children. Including children. Yeah. Uh, heinous act, depraved act. Um, and he's currently in custody and is awaiting trial um, for this awful and terrible deed. So, Steph, what are your initial thoughts on it? Well, I guess my initial thoughts are that uh, this is a topic that was just going to be, um, as soon as I saw this, it's just the predictability of how the narrative is going to go with things like this is just, um, it's disappointing. And I, I really hate that, you know, I'm so often, you know, we are placed in this position when things like this happen, because, you know, of course, the natural response to this is disgust, right? I think both of us would share that sentiment, right, about this happening. Um, and this, but there's also this sense of this feeling I have it anyways, of this kind of resignation, that this will be the norm. And, you know, and it's going to happen more and more. And I don't really see a way out of it unless we start really looking at the reality of the way things are instead of just the then all this narrative talk, you know, I listened to um, uh, a Ben Shapiro podcast on this topic this morning. So I wanted to kind of catch myself up a little before the show. And I find I, I like his podcast for just kind of what's the thing that happened in the last 24 hours and kind of just lay out the basic facts of it because he's, he is, he is very good with doing that. But I was just so just tired of just the way that he, that he talked about this, this, this completely basic thing, just not really getting to the core of anything that's actually happening. Just this insistence that, you know, the, the kind of normal criticisms, which I, I admit are valid criticisms, right, of saying that, well, you know, this idea that President Trump caused this because he used the term invaders is ridiculous, things like that, right? But then you go, you know, he goes on with this whole, 
oh, well, you know, we're not even saying that people that criticize Islam, we're talking about people that criticize radical Islam. And it's like, no, Ben Shapiro, no, no. Like the, the underlying, you know, civilizational tension that is being that is being forced on everyone is a real thing. And if we can't talk about it honestly, this will happen on both sides. And I don't understand why people can't, you know, because even saying this, right, even saying this, people are going to hear this and think, oh, so Stephanie's saying that this justifies people shooting at mosques. No, it doesn't. I have never called for anything like that, nor would I call for anything like that. On the other hand, you know, we also need to acknowledge the fact that do we really not see a problem that there are mosques in a city called Christchurch? Do we really not see how this two diametrically opposed civilizations are not going to be able to live together in peace forever? And we know that because it's never happened. It doesn't happen. And I just, I am so, I'm just so tired of the unwillingness of anybody, left or right, to just say, what are the real facts in regards to these people? What, what really pushes this extremism that people actually commit these acts? And obviously, I'm not justifying them for the thousandth time. I'm just, I'm just sick of this unwillingness to have a real conversation. Everybody's kind of hiding behind this, this curtain of, you know, oh, well, I can't say publicly that this. It's like, we have to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I push back and say I think it's possible to live together um, even with people who have radically, uh, diametrically opposed, you know, civilizations, beliefs, whatever. And, and I wouldn't deny, this is, this is where I break with the standard narrative on this. Most people would deny the fact that there's a civil, civilizational clash going on. They think, <laughs> that, you know. Oh, that's crazy. This is because primarily, and, and this is a, a derivative of something that somebody said about the president in Wall Street Journal, but I'll, I'll uh, back it up and use it in this way. The left takes religion seriously, but not literally. And religious people take religion literally, but, but also seriously. But that's the difference, right? The left doesn't believe that any of the religions are true. Therefore, they believe that all religion is just a cultural expression. And that an example of theological hostility, which is different than personal hostility, because theologies can be in conflict with one another without necessarily willing the, the direct harm of somebody else, right? We can believe that that as Jesus said, right, I am the way and the truth and the life and nobody comes to the Father but through me. We can believe that that's true and also not have, have ill will explicitly toward Muslims per se. We can, of course, think they're wrong, but, but it doesn't mean that we have to, have to have ill will towards them. So there is theological conflict. The left sees that and says, well, none of these religions are true. It's all superstition. And all what they really are are codes for racial bigotry. So that's why they say essentially that in some, in some ways, Islamophobia, whatever that means, is just a, a form of racism when it's really not at all. Now, I'm not talking about Islamophobia as the media defines it, where it's, you know, an irrational fear of everyday Muslims. But if you're talking about in a grander context of whether there are legitimate points about the fact that certain, not all religions commit violence with, this, with the same epidemicity. That's just a fact. And Andrew Clavin is fond of saying, and I think it's a great point, in a world where the truth is made off limits, only outlaws will tell the truth. Only people like Donald Trump will tell the truth. Only playboy porn stars will tell the truth. And that's not the world we live in. We don't want to make the truth off limits so that only bad yeah. people, so only white supremacists can tell the truth. 
because that's that's how you get here when you make when you subvert the truth and subjugate the truth and force it underground when you force the reality that that islam is is civil civilizationally different than western civilization they do not share they being the the clerics the, the people who you know who are the theological leaders the devout that actually follow their religion. Talking about, I would include the laity as well. I'm not talking about westernized Muslims who really don't believe their religion or don't practice it devoutly or only practice it with, in some oblique way and don't interpret the scriptures literally or whatever. I'm talking about the orthodox, traditional Muslims. There are conflicts between what they sure. believe and the traditional values of Western civilization. That's a fact. It's not to say that those folks can't live together you might believe that they can't, but I'm not even, I'm not even going to go there. I'm not willing to say that those two, those two groups can't share, you know, a land together. I think it's possible. I think the United States has been proof of that. We've had a tenuous experiment with it, but I think, I think it can be done. But to deny people the opportunity to say out loud in public that, yes, Islam seems to have, whether it's embedded in the doctrine, and of course we would both argue that it's embedded in the doctrine, or even if it's in just the interpretation of the doctrine from a secular perspective, there is a higher epidemicity of violence and radicalism in that community. And if you can't say that out loud, only outlaws and radicals will say it. And then you're, you're just, you're driving the phenomenon underground and you're going to lead to really, and it's going to lead to really ugly things like we saw in Christchurch. Well, that's, that's, I like that point. I like that Clavin quote, right? Because that's, that's kind of a more eloquent way of what I'm trying to speak to, right? It's not so much about this whole thing of um, what the media so often does in these situations where they kind of try and trace back like, okay, so Trump said invaders and this guy said invaders, therefore, da, 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 this is how this works. And, you know, this Democrat said this thing, and this is why, you know, this blah, 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 anti-Semitism. It's like, that's not what I'm talking about here. I agree with you completely. It's a matter of the ability to just speak honestly about things as they are right? That, that is, that is something that we need to be able to do, you know, and I've, I, I talk about this a lot because I think it is, it's fundamentally important, which is funny because, um, as a Catholic, I reject the, the, the concept, the kind of Americanist way anyway of, of free speech, right? So <laughs> funny I say that, but free, the, the necessity to be able to speak the truth is very different than the necessity that, you know, you should, you know, have the right to say absolutely whatsoever you want. And maybe we can talk about that in the next half. Um, I guess as far as, as far as your other point though, that, um, that we can we can live this together, and this is where um, it's funny. I have to half push back in a way because I think that it's a matter of I don't believe the American experiment has worked. Um, I think that it has worked so far as it goes um, for so long as it has, but I think that it's I think I guess my point is that it is rapidly deteriorating, and maybe it could work if we really um, you know people were really committed to at least as as the you know the framers kind of would have seen it as at least you know a Christian basic idea. Right. There was never an understanding that, you know, everybody can come here and, you know, um, every single religion that believes absolutely whatever can come here. I'm not sure that that's it, it can work in some limited ways, but I'm not convinced that that is going to work long term. And I think this is going to I think we're going to see this more and more with any of these kind of post enlightenment uh, political philosophies when they are removed um, from. I mean, we have to look as well that. I think we both would agree that the ideal has to be if, if there has to, if there's one truth. The ideal would obviously be everybody agreeing with the truth, right? Everyone agreeing with one truth would obviously produce the most stable society. So I guess where I have issue with when you say that civil, I, I'm saying, I think there's a distinction here too, between 
can individual people from different, radically different cultures, religions, and places live with radically different other people? I think that can certainly be true. And I think that history proves that and far, far before the enlightenment that that has been the case in, in lots of places, you know, the, the shaping of nations doesn't, is not um, usually that simple or clear. And, you know, people, people come from all sorts of things. It, but I think this, this experiment we're trying where we, we, we literally take, you know, a religion that is a Middle Eastern religion that is entire, like so intrinsically linked to the Arab language, um, to all these other things. And then we just try and take huge numbers of those people and decide that they are going to simply come. And as you said, to the left, they don't understand religion. They don't understand that these people are not going to come to New Zealand or America and simply become New Zealanders or Americans in insofar as they don't really believe in anything and are secularists, because that is what most people in the United States are. That's what most people in New Zealand are. And I think that to me, it's also a question of what, what is, what is the gain of this? What, what is really, what really has been gained by mass Muslim immigration anywhere? I literally cannot think of anything good on a base, on a group level, nothing. I can think of individuals who've done good things, sir, but that's, that's not the same thing. And that's not something I'm arguing against. I mean, in some sense, there's, so Christ told us to love our enemies, right? And I'm not declaring Muslim people are enemies per se, but let's, let's call them ideological enemies. They, their, their beliefs are completely anathema to ours. So I'll, I'll consider them. Yeah, their beliefs are, yeah, sure. In that context, they're, they are enemies. Okay. Um, and we're instructed to love our enemies. And what does that mean? That means in the, in the Christian context, love doesn't just mean a warm feeling, doesn't just mean what the world means by love, but it means opening people and giving them the opportunity to hear the truth and to understand the truth and to live fully in the yeah. truth, because that is love. Love is, is presenting people with the truth because the truth sets you free and the truth allows you to live um, you know, your best life by, in the proper sense of that word, best, not the best as the world would see it, but a, a <laughs> live life. your best life, yes. A, a, a life that's going to save your soul and it's going to give you meaning while you're here on earth. Okay. That's, that's what the best life is. I do think that culture matters. Culture always matters. And anytime you introduce cultural instability into a country, it has costs, particularly when the dominant social group, which in the United States is secular leftism. That is the dominant mode of cultural interaction. When the dominant mode of cultural interaction makes no, makes no claim to the incoming group that they need to assimilate because the left rejects, in this country, the left rejects assimilation. There, there's, there's been a very clear and clever rephrasing that the left has done. They've turned the melting pot, which was once the ideal of the United States, into the salad bowl. That's been their great project of the last 50 years. That's gone un unnoticed and uncharted as far as I'm concerned. They've changed it from the melting pot, which implies all groups come together in pursuit of the national ideal. And we, you and I probably disagree with what most people have viewed the national ideal as. Sure. We'd like to channel the, that national idea to be the one true Roman Catholic church. But for the time being, that's a more stable arrangement than the salad bowl, which is nobody assimilates with one another. We, we belabor and begrudge the majority group because they're viewed as oppressors. And in, you know, artificially inserting more and more vegetables into the salad bowl just creates a more heterogeneous society. And 
and this has nothing to do with race. It doesn't. It actually doesn't have anything to do with race at all. And it has everything to do with the cultural and civilizational inheritance that people have. It has nothing to do with the melanin level in somebody's skin. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with their cultural expression. And it's not to say that the that the influx of different cultures can't in some oblique way be assimilated in. Because I think when people are assimilated in, that's how they get, ex that's how they get exposed to the truth, I think. I think without people being like in the presence of Catholic Christians, they might never receive that truth. If, if somebody grows up their entire lives in Saudi Arabia and is never presented with a Catholic like you or I or, some, or Father Nix or some other Catholic, then, then they'll live their whole lives in ignorance. And that's, that's not the kind of thing you do, honestly. Go to Saudi Arabia. No, that's, that's my point. There's no love in that either. The Catholic Church used to be missionaries. They, they didn't import everyone into um, the Roman Empire. They expanded it. And the same goes further later on into the church when we talk about, you know, um, Spain and the New World and all this. They didn't say, oh, look at all these, these, these Mayans. Let's, let's import them into Europe. No, they said, let's teach them the true faith. And, and I, I get that at this point in time, and especially speaking, again, I trust me, I have much sympathy for the fact that there are people, I was just talking about this with Father Nix on the show that, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for Muslims living in the Middle East, for example, because a lot of them will not be exposed to Christianity. And if they do leave Islam, they may be murdered. So I do have sympathy. I, I completely recognize that my hardline views on Islam um, on a political level and, and a personal level, I understand the pain that people have when they even want to leave. They don't have a choice. And I guess I just, I don't know if it's, because I get, I get what you're saying and, and I get the impulse and this, this might just be it, you know, this is the thing we disagree on, but I think that I don't see how, first of all, I don't see how it's been effective, partly as you say, due to the whole salad ball point, which I think is true, right? And I also think that the idea that, you know, majority in Canada is the same as the United States in this regard or worse. Um, when people, these people are not, you know, these people are not even Christians in any sense, right? When people are being exposed to anything, they're not being exposed to an ideal whatsoever. They're not even being exposed to an Americanist ideal in, in, a, in a poorly constructed fashion. They are being exposed to come here, do whatever you want, and, uh, you know, preferably bring your culture with you because it'd be more woke and more progressive. And I like what Douglas Murray said about this in his book, The Strange Death of Europe, which I highly recommend. It's actually a really interesting book. And, you know, Douglas Murray is a gay atheist and uh, hardly a white supremacist or anything like this. But he says, you know, when you look at things like culture coming in, he's like, there's a level when it can be beneficial, right? It, there, he's like, I can see how, you know, this the city having different food and different clothes and different people coming in and being able to, you know, go to a market and things are new. He's like, there, he's like, there are good things and, you know, different industry and different ideas. He's like, that's good. But he's like, there isn't, you know, this does not continue infinitely. There's a point when it becomes a detriment or it completely destroys any semblance of an original culture. So I read this guy's manifesto and I was- I haven't read it yet, so. I was listening to the, um, some of the commentary around it, which some of it was, was rather good. And so going through, the, the first thing I think that it's important to understand, and this is the point I bring up, when people immediately go to, you're, you're concerned about mass immigration. This guy was concerned about mass immigration. Ipso facto, you're in favor of killing 50 Muslims in a mosque. The immediate rebuttal is, you're in favor of wealth distribution. Joseph Stalin was in favor of wealth distribution. Therefore, ipso facto, you're, you're in favor of killing you know, 100 million you know, uh, Soviet defectors. I mean, that, that's, that's the same logic. Or as Gavin McInnes would say, dogs, Dogs are mammals, cats are mammals, therefore dogs are cats, right? 
It's <laughs> I love that. I've heard that exact <laughs> It's absurd, right? So to to say that one is against mass immigration and that this this psychopath was also against mass immigration does not mean that you condone the the positions of this psychopath in truth. But I, I wanted to read this quote from uh, G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, um, which is a great book, and I, I've yet to finish it, but I've been reading it. And he goes over this one, um, I don't know whether it's an actual scene that occurred or whether it's sort of allegory that he uses to make a broader point. Chesterton, of course, was from Great Britain. So he's in Britain, in, in Great Britain, there's this place, or was this place, I don't know if it's still active, I, I doubt it is. I think, it, I think it's actually a prison now, but it was called Hanwell Asylum, and it was a, obviously a mental hospital for people who were, who were Looney Tunes, right? And he, he goes on, and, and this is really interesting, he devotes an entire chapter to defining insanity, which you, if you think about it as an epistemological question, it's actually very interesting. To, because we know people who are insane when we see it, but it's hard to put a fine point on what exactly makes them insane. I mean, there's a basic incoherence sometimes that attends to people, but, but this is what Chesterton says. This chapter is purely practical and is concerned with what is actually, or what actually is the chief mark and element of insanity. We may say in summary that it is reason used without root, reason in the void, the man, who, the man who begins to think without the proper first principles goes mad. He begins to think at the wrong end. Ellipses. Mysticism keeps men sane. And the ordinary man has always been sane because the ordinary man has always been a mystic. He has always left himself free to doubt his gods. But unlike the agnostic of today, free also to believe in them. He has also cared more for the truth than for consistency. So that's the, the quote that, was, that, struck at, that struck me while reading this guy's manifesto because it was oddly coherent. The whole thing made a, a certain amount of profane and perverse sense, but it was clear that he was missing that divine spark, that, that crucial piece, which is that all human beings have dignity. That's the one assumption that, that was, I mean, there were, there were plenty of things wrong with this, of course, but it made a certain amount of logical sense, even though I didn't approve of the outcome, of course. He was certainly going from A to B, therefore C. I mean, I disagreed that B necessitates C, of course, but he was following a certain basic logic. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't hearing voices. He wasn't a schizophrenic. I mean, he had a certain internal logic to what he was saying, which makes him a very interesting test case. And this is to go back to Andrew Clavin, who, who really, I would recommend- That's a scary thing to think about. I would, yes, it is. I would recommend Clavin's commentary on this because he, he was very good. He made the point that there are two types of mentally ill people. There are people with like neurological conditions. So schizophrenia, people who hear voices and see things that aren't there and, you know, and have disturbances that are beyond their control and are probably, you know, rooted in the mind in some way, like actually rooted in the mind. And then there are people with philosophical problems that, that become a sickness. In, in some ways, all mental problems that aren't directly like hallucinogenic in some way, at root are philosophical problems. People taking bad philosophies to their logical end and logical extreme. So 
I mean, that's what this is. So in the beginning, he talks about low birth rates among whites. Now, I think low birth rates are a problem, a problem everywhere. Uh, I mean, it's certainly not. Yeah, contraception is always bad. Yeah, I, I mean, contraception is always bad. We're Catholics. That's what we believe. And then he goes into. Yeah, don't go to Africa and give them condoms either. Thank you very much. Then he goes into mass immigration and cheap labor. Now, this is what bothers me, is that now the point is going to be made that because this wacko believed, parentheses, rightly, end parentheses, that the mass importation of low-wage, low-skilled immigration undercuts the wages of native-born citizens, which is a social scientific fact, that because he believed that, therefore, that, that premise is off-limits going forward. I, I totally reject that. I think that's a, another species of the cats. No, that's exactly how they think. Yeah, exactly right. how they think. It's just another species of the cats are mammals, dogs are mammals, dogs are cats fallacy. Um, this, and this is his quote, this is ethnic replacement, this is cultural replacement, this is racial replacement. Uh, obviously, he's a racist. I mean, flat out, and I would, I would uh, reject that in all its forms. So he says his purposes here, and this is where it gets interesting to me to incite further violence. So this was, this was a, a step towards a further end for him. This was not necessarily an end in itself. Um, he, he said he wanted to create an atmosphere of fear and change in which drastic, powerful, revolutionary action can occur. If you notice with a lot of these people, and it's on the communist left too, there's a certain accelerationist bent where they want to hasten the eschaton right? They want to bring about the destruction of civilization as we know it, so they can pick up the pieces when everything, when all the chairs are scattered about the room, and they can create their Marxist utopia, or on the right, their racist utopia, or where, whatever, right? But there's a certain accelerationist tendency where people want to hasten the end of things as we know it, so they can rebuild it in their image. Uh, and he, he even says, and this is the most, this was the most shocking quote, or one of the most shocking quotes, I suppose, that he had. He said, quote, a vote for a radical candidate that opposes your values and incites agitation and anxiety, end quote. And he goes on to say, essentially, is better than a milquetoast politician who doesn't do anything at all. He would rather have somebody who actively opposes his values, but agitates the, pu the public enough that essentially they burn the whole place down, rather than the person that represents his values, but does it in a milk toast way. So, so this is like the one point that I read on this too, before you, cause I want to hear the rest of this. Cause I have only, I've only got to hear that part. Cause I, I did hear that was the part that I took really immediate note of was the whole, that acceleration is kind of, you know, way that he, that he spoke in that manifesto. And I think, I think it's interesting. And I, I really, that's really telling what he says about, you know, who he would vote for. And yet I think that this is another example of one of those things where I'm like, this is what people are going to do. And, and I just, I wish people could see that there is a way to, because I, I don't, I don't take that view. I don't particularly um, want things to blow up, but I, I see that sentiment all the time, though usually not, um, obviously not among the people that I would ever speak to in, in this manner. But, you know, there is, there is this tendency of things are just going so far, right? With so many things, you know, the, the, you know, I mean, I, I look at things like abortion, right? You know, to put a, to put an example that probably all of us can agree with, you can see that, that people would want things to just happen so that we can duke this thing out however it has to go. And the problem with that is, as, as you said in that, in that prior very good quote, that that will leave only the, um, what was it, only the, 
extremists to speak. In a world where the truth is made off limits, only out Thank you. the truth. Well, that, but that's, that, yeah, that's exactly it. So because, because I can't say now abortion is murder, right? I do it, but a lot of people don't. Um, because, you know, Catholic bishops don't say abortion is murder and they don't excommunicate pro-abortion politicians and they don't talk about, they don't tell their priests to talk about it in mass. Because we don't do that, because we don't act, it will be the outlaws. It will be people who blow up abortion clinics. I condemn that. I think it's bad, but it will happen. And I feel like this, this is the thing about being in any sort of politics that just eventually drove me to just talk exclusively, <laughs> almost exclusively about Catholicism until now, because I just got so fed up with saying, yeah, this is what's going to happen. And yet, you know, then I get, you know, I get the brunt of all of these bad ideas because I simply say, this will happen if we keep going like this. But please, please go on. No, that, I mean, he goes on to talk about the fact that he's not a conservative. He says that conservatism. He's fascist, apparently. Yeah, he, he says conservatism is corporatism. That is. He's a conservative. He calls himself an eco-fascist. Um, he's for the preservation of the natural environment. Aren't we all, by the way? I mean, is are people actually actively opposed to preserving the natural environment? I mean, I guess, but God, like, trees, yeah. You know, that's that's one of the bigger canards. Is that I mean, anyway, leave that alone. But um, <laughs> you know, he goes on and he talks about um, if right if he's for Donald Trump or not, and he says, as a symbol of white identity, yes, but as an actual politician, no. And this is another point that Clavin had, which was so funny that he said, um, and I, I hate to just keep referring to him over and over again, but I just really recommend his <laughs> Give this podcast. <laughs> podcast on this because he was really insightful. Um, but he said he essentially agrees with the media's version of the president of the United States, but not with the actual version of the president of the United States. Right? <laughs> he agrees with what the media thinks, <laughs> but not with what he actually is, which is, is, is a sort of an, a funny dichotomy. Oof. And yeah, I mean, that's it. So, I mean, this is the, um, you know, this is, I'm just, I have this book open. It's, it's a treasure trove of insights. It really is. Um, Chesterton still? Chesterton, yeah. No, it's great. I, I'm just looking through it and I find all these quotes I've highlighted and I could just read his book and, and be satisfied my whole life. Um, but he talks about uh, this guy, Mr. Blatchford. He has a strange idea that he will make it easier to forgive sins by saying that there are no sins to forgive. And this is kind of what the left wants, right? They want wow. that there is no religion that is right or wrong, but they're all, you know, expressions of some spiritual fervor that all of us are essentially singing Kumbaya together, even though we don't know it. We're all... We're all praying to the same God, man. <coughs> what, a perfect what a great segue. Right. And excellent. Next topic. Act as an excellent segue to talking about the church and its treatment of religious diversity in the world, um, particularly in light of Pope Francis's comments, where he said that, I, I don't want to misquote him, but I mean, my sense of what he said, if I recall correctly, is that all religions are willed by God. Is that right? Is that what he said? I mean, we talked about it a couple episodes ago, so <laughs> I think I think we actually did go into this at the time. Um, but no, that that is you know, as we said, and it, you know, regardless, whatever he said, if you know, he, I just don't have it verbatim in front of me. I know he said that. I just don't know. Yeah, sorry. 
Yeah. yeah, we know he said what that is. And we also know that the general attitude of the church, the general orientation, if you will, of the Catholic church has been towards um, that, that view of ecumenism, which is, you know, totally um, indifferent, you know, novel. who wants it to use the term rank indifferentism? <laughs> is that Leo XIII? novelty. Yeah. And, um, you know, it all stems from a set of assumptions. And, it, and it's a set of secular assumptions. So for us, for traditional Catholics, we know that if what the Gospels say are true, it makes a series of claims about our lives and the way that we live our lives. If there is one truth, and that truth is to be found in the revelation as revealed in the Gospels, um, and in the life and preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, it carries for us a series of obligations, right? Where we, as, as Christ says, we need to go and make disciples of all nations to save their souls, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And as soon as you believe that there is a truth, all of your assumptions about the world and the way that you should treat people with different views of that truth changes. But as soon as you take on the modern, secular, skeptic assumption, that we really don't know if there's any truth at all, let alone whether Christianity is true. Um, we default to this Lockean, Hobbesian position of live and let live, and um, because nobody's really sure of what the truth is, so let's just let everybody be and separate church and state. And the separation of church and state is an absurd and ludicrous idea on its face because the separation of church and state, and Steph, I know that you have a ton to say on this, so I don't want to hold up the train too much, but the separation of church and state is a myth and a fiction. It's an utter myth and it's an utter fiction because what is church but the expression of the creed? It's, it's the, it's, and, and that's, I'm sure we're going to get comments saying it's no, it's the, you know, it's Christ bride. I know, I know it's all those things. I'm not dumb. I know what it is, but I'm saying in, the, in this context, okay. Steph, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, I think that it, it relates to a lot of false presuppositions, right? About, as you said, you know, when you, when you accept the Catholic faith, you, it really does change the way you think about everything. And I think that there is a really forgotten thing that we are, you know, compelled to believe as Catholics. And that is the idea of the social reign of Christ, the King, right? The idea that, um, Christ is the king, not only of our kind of private lives or family lives, but of the whole society. Um, and I think that that idea is completely just monstrous to people today, right? How dare you say that your God is the king over my life, right? But that was actually, it's very recently that that idea was was rejected. I mean, historically speaking, um, very recently as far as it goes. And I think that that obviously is going to lead to this, this false idea of the separation of church and state. And I mean, even... Um, like, no, there is, there is an idea of, and I think we talked about this in our death penalty episode, there is an idea of a distinction between church and state in terms of what they govern. But the fundamental problem, I think, um, and I, I listened to a really good lecture about this by Michael Davies, another one of those, like, <laughs> just watch this instead of listening to me poorly explain it kind of things. Um, but a, um, he talked about the idea of the um, where authority comes from. And that, that was a really good kind of foundational point that I had kind of missed, right? So the idea we have in, you know, today in most Western countries is that the authority is derived from the consent of the governed, right? Um, so that if you're in the United States and, you know, if you're someone, the president, his authority comes from the people. So 
first to be clear, I'm not saying that um, necessarily that it would be against the church to elect someone, right, and have that person be elected and therefore have the power. But his authority, you know, in and of itself comes from comes from God. And you can see that in scripture, and we can certainly see that in, you know, uh, government going back a very long time. I mean, this is something that, you know, was acknowledged even of the the Roman government, right? <laughs> Let alone the post-Christian government and Christ, especially the government. Christ in the Praetorium before Pilate says, you know, you would not have any power yeah. if not granted unto you. Exactly. So. I was hoping you'd be able to quote that offhand because I didn't want to have to look it up or butcher it. But yeah, that's exactly it. And I think when we reject we reject that idea, then ultimately all that happened is we have an idea where the um, and, you know, I know this in, in listening to Michael Davies talk about this, I know people would be like, oh, what an extreme example. You know, we have a constitution, but, you know, he's right that it fundamentally comes down to if the authority only comes from the people, then there is really no way to enforce an objective moral standard because the people in the United States, for instance, have decided the majority of people, or at least, you know, the majority who've, who've you know, caused this to happen have decided that it is acceptable to kill children with abortion. So, what possible argument do you have other than, you know, I mean, sure, you can say the First Amendment, but even in that case, even that document was derived from the authority of the people. I mean, yes, there's an idea of, oh, rights, you know, rights granted to God. But even then, this is another reason where we run into a problem with religious pluralism, because who's God? Is it Christian? Is it not Christian? Who who gets to decide these things? And I think I think that it, it's all these things taken together, it, it really unravels very quickly until we get to a point where people are being, ba people are basically expected, you know, and they say, oh, um, like think, think of what we see with, um, I don't know, Senate candidates, for instance, who have, have a Catholic faith, right? People say, oh, are you going to be able to be objective and put aside your Catholic faith? I mean, this idea that the most important thing about a person, their religious beliefs, aren't going to influence how they vote, it's, it's ridiculous. Like even on that personal level, even the personal level of personal religion, which we're still allowed to have, even that is not good enough because we haven't ex accepted the religion of non-religion. Yeah, yes. you're right. I mean, that's why that's why the separation of church and state is a fiction because mm -hmm. church in the sphere of the state. That's what this is. When I make these claims about the church, I'm not saying that this is all that the church is, but I'm making making this in the context of what is the church in the context of the state in participation in civic life. To to be a member of the church is to carry with you a set of assumptions about the world, ideally, anyway. I mean, you can go to church and not not carry those assumptions, but but to be a card-carrying member of the Catholic Church, as it were, be a practicing Catholic, you ought to have a certain set of presuppositions about the world. And if you're asked to table those, like that's the most. I mean, I was taught in history class in public school that the way that John Kennedy overcame anti-Catholicism was by saying, "I don't take my cues from the Pope; I take my cues from the U.S. Constitution," or whatever he said. And, and we were taught like, oh, wow, what a, what a noble thing of him to do, to, you know, put his religion aside. No, he shouldn't have to do that. His religion is one of the most important things, the most important decisions that he would have to make. And the comment you make and Michael Davies made in that lecture about, um, about this sort of tyranny of the majority, right, that, that arises in democracy, where 51% of the people codify something as legitimate and magically it becomes synonymous with morality, right? I mean, anything that becomes legal within a generation or two will seem or appear ethical to the non-formed non conscience, right? To the just who's wedded to the spirit of the age, they're gonna be, you know, they're just gonna find it to be moral because it's legal. So 
um, what it does in essence is it, it, it's, it furthers this radical subjectivism where, because this is what radical subjectivists really believe if you pin them down and get them to admit it, they just believe that there is no real truth, there is no moral truth, there is no objective basis for moral values. Therefore, the only basis we have for morality is a gut instinct. And what are gut instincts derived from but the majoritarian opinions of our ancestors passed down to us. That's really what it is, right? Because you form these, I mean, of, of course, we believe that, you know, you have an innate conscience, but I'm talking now from a secular perspective. How do they believe that these things occur, okay? They believe that these are just passed down through, you know, uh, society imparting them, which, is, which implies a certain majoritarian rule, right? That these majoritarian assumptions get passed down and it just becomes a tyranny of the majority where 51% of, of the population or 54% or 61% or 73% or whatever say, says that it's okay to kill unborn children because it's a woman's right to choose. Shut up, bigot, if you disagree. Then within a generation, the idea of questioning that, that very fraught and frankly illogical premise because embedded in the statement, her body, her choice, is a complete, it's a non sequitur, right? It's not her body. Therefore, the second half of the statement doesn't even follow. So it's, it's a total, total aberration. But that's, that's exactly the point. They've made debate off limits because they've gotten the majority of the population to sign on to their assumption. And then in the radical subjectivist point of view, where there is no objective truth, there is no God, there is no real standard, there is nothing objective that we can point to outside of the material here and now and say that this instructs us that this is wrong. If everybody agrees with it, then that's the only way that we can make decisions justly. If there's no objective truth to which our moral decisions, uh, you know, um, bear a certain responsibility to, if truth doesn't get a vote, then yeah, then why not just, just go with what, um, you know, Susan from the parish council thinks. Also, I like that truth doesn't get a vote. And, you know, we know who the truth is, right? <laughs> the truth himself. We've said, you know, we, and this is something I really, really criticize within, within the church itself. And this, this lack of emphasis on, I mean, ask the average Catholic what they think about the social rate of Christ the King. I guarantee you, 95% of them will probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, maybe not 95, that's being a little harsh. But, you know, solid 80 plus percent probably have no idea what that even means. Um, because they has, that has been completely just, I mean, of course, the church has not tried to say, oh, we will never not teach this. But it, that, that is the attitude, right? This idea that we've just kind of accepted, um, accepted the world's false premises and that we've decided that uh we have been able to just uncrown christ that he he's you know he is given he is given the right to you know govern our personal lives you know we we are allowed to say as catholics that we won't um have sex outside of marriage we won't use birth control or any of these sorts of things but you know if we dare to say this is actually what you owe to god um as as a being he created that is monstrous and bigoted and crazy and it's you know i i, I like your points too about just the you know, once within a generation, right? Because this is the thing. Um, I say, you know, I've, I've said this, I've said this many times to people, like the idea that these people think that they're special and they've cracked the code of, you know, rightful human society because they're so progressive as though they're just smarter than people who have, you know, kept many similar moral ideals for hundreds, if not thousands of years. These people have, they've got it all out. But on the other hand, people like you and me are not special either. 
because we are just saying things that would have been universally understood to anybody a hundred years ago. You don't kill babies. This is not a difficult concept. This is not a radical thing. And the problem is, is as you said, though, it, it's, they've accepted these false premises and they've pushed them through so strongly that to say those things today takes a certain level of courage to just say things that our grandparents would have been universally horrified by to just say, to just agree with them. Um, and it's, I don't know. And I, I don't know where that courage is going to come from, but I think it's going to have to start with the church actually saying that, uh, no, Christ actually is, is the King of heaven and earth. And, um, that was with you on the podcast the other night. <laughs> That's where I said it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't remember. It's so true. Uh, that, um, the, if the church doesn't speak in the, the, that clear language anymore, it really doesn't. There's, we are a ch church of euphemisms now. We, we talk about things in the abstract. We talk about love and justice and compassion and the thirst for this and that, for the, you know, awakening of, and the God of surprises and all of these various banalities that really don't mean anything. I mean, of course, justice means something, but it's not quite what they think it means, I think, in many, in many cases, right? Quick plug, catch us on uh, live stream on the Return to Tradition channel. Yes. Uh, we really talk about the way the modern church used things like justice and thirst at the LA education. Experience. I want to thank Anthony for having us on because that really, we'll, we'll link it in the yeah. description of this video. Yeah, I just, I want to make sure some people see that because I was a little shocked even reading these things. But anyways, continue. I'm sorry. I had fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, as soon as the church abandons its requirement, as far as I'm concerned, to speak plainly the fact that Jesus Christ is the king of the universe and Jesus Christ owes our undying loyalty and undying submission from both an individual perspective and a national perspective and a supernatural in a supernatural national perspective like a global perspective um we won't we're going to be pussyfooting around what where we need to be and we're going to be getting into these lockean compromises where i'm okay you're okay we'll leave each other alone but we're not going to assert the truth i mean it's like it's it's the exact type of spirit that infected the, you know, the Protestant invasion into the recreation of the new mass. Uh, you know, how there were Protestant advisors at the Second Vatican Council. Invasion. The invasion of Protestants, right, into, into reshaping the liturgy. And it's, sure. it's all based on these assumptions that we want more ecumenism. And what does ecumenism mean exactly? Well, in the Church of Dialogue, ecumenism means you go up, you talk about how awesome it is that you share, I don't know, four or five beliefs in common vaguely, and you engage in dialogue, and then you can just wipe your hands and go away, knowing that they don't believe the fullness of the truth, and that if they, they willfully reject that truth, their soul will be lost for all eternity. But at least you engaged in dialogue. You know, it's, it's a really strange thing, but it's a post-conciliar phenomenon within the church that even the higher, the highest ranking prelates seem prone to. I mean, I'm prone to it, I guess. I mean, we're all prone to it. It's not me saying that I'm not or anything like that, but it's just that it's the spirit has infected our church where we're unwilling to state plainly that we believe different things from other religions. I mean, it's just a really basic. Yeah, and it, it, it's also interesting too that you say that we're all subject to this. And I think that's, I think that's true. And I, I also think that it's, 
it becomes harder for individuals to just say, I believe this, when the church has abandoned those who actually believe the true faith, you know, when the, the human element of the mainstream hierarchy, you know, in the conciliar period have, have basically, in a lot of ways, treated as the enemy people who just believe what the church has always taught, right? And I think, and a quick note too on the ecumenism thing, I'm not saying that there is never an occasion when you can come together legitimately um, with people of other religions to, you know, I'm, I'm very happy when I see, you know, Protestants voting against abortion. That's awesome. Um, but that, but that isn't, yeah, that's not, that's just, you know, coming together on things that we legitimately agree on. That is not to say that, as you said, okay, we have nothing else to talk about. And I also find it interesting too, that this idea that we can talk to some people without actually saying our religion believes something different than other people's religions, because you cannot, as, as I said, in the beginning of the show, there is no such thing as conversation without truth in what you're saying. You know, if, if I, if I'm trying to have an ecumenical conversation with somebody and I can't actually understand what they believe, it becomes an utterly fruitless exercise. And I think that unfortunately the Catholic church has decided to take, take that position where we, we constantly are dialoguing and nothing actually comes of it. No action comes of it because they are so scared to just say, Hey, we believe this. And this is kind of urgent that you come to understand. Yeah. It's like, it's, it is such an insidious thing. And, and because the church isn't, isn't really saying it, it, it becomes difficult, right? Because think about it. Like I am an individual person. When I, you know, happen to talk to a Protestant friend in real life, it's not as though I'm, you know, it, it would be prudent or proper for me to start going off about randomly, you know, over cheesecake, why I think that they're, you know, they're completely in error and their eternal soul is in peril for their beliefs like that. That can't happen. But the problem is, is that today people don't, know that I believe that. People don't know that I believe any of these basic Catholic teachings about other religions, about morality, about anything, you know, it, and that is a problem because Catholicism used to have an authority because if a person was a Catholic, you knew they believed something. You knew that they didn't support abortion. You know, they didn't use birth control. You know, you know, you knew a lot of things about them and that has been taken from us. And that's a tragedy. The, the, the fiction that for people who believe church history began at the end of the Second Vatican Council, they think that it's always been this way, that the church has been hesitant to express its beliefs. And, and obviously people who are informed about the faith don't believe this, but I'm saying people in passing, modern, sure. they'll think like, oh, well, you know, if things have been like this recently, this, this must have been the way that it's always been, or at least in more enlightened times. But I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the church was speaking clearly about these things and that we weren't more Catholic than the Pope. I'm not saying that we are, but, but there, there wasn't that sense that, oh, we're, we're like, you know, contravening, you know, established authority on this. Mainstream church, yeah. I mean, like this was the mainstream Catholic approach not too long ago. I mean, maybe, maybe a century ago. You know what I mean? Like this isn't really that, that old in terms of human history and church history. I mean, this is like the, the novelty oh. is... We're not the novelty. The idea that there's one singular truth that ought to be vociferously is not a novelty. The novelty lies in this radical indifferentism, this radical, um, this preference, it seems. As, I mean, if, if Pope Francis' statement is not an expressed preference for religious pluralism, I don't know what is. I don't know how you can take God wills all religions in any other way, but that he will, that Pope Francis thinks that God wills error. God does not will error. If God wills error, then the entire foundation upon which we build our beliefs as a church is it's it's it collapses like a house of cards. And I just think that um, 
I really hope and pray that Pope Francis can examine the damage that those remarks have done to people who are confused. I'm confused. I'm not, I'm still learning. I mean, I'm 22. I'm still learning about, you know, the church and my faith. And I'm trying to, I'm trying really hard to inform myself about what I believe and what I should believe. And it, it's so helpful to have a leader in the church to speak clearly about these things. But it seems like whenever I want moral clarity, I have to go back a hundred years and it shouldn't be that way. I shouldn't have to go back to, you know, Pope St. Pius X or whatever. And as great as those popes are, of course, that's, that's not, I'm not disparaging them, obviously. The point I'm making is, why can't we have what we've had for 1900 years? Why does it have to be this novelty in our day? Why do we have, why as Catholics, do we have to stand for it? I don't think it's our obligation and duty to stand down while, while this auto demolition of the church happens. It's not, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to, to as put it. in humility, in humility, call for the prelates and the clergy to speak up with clarity and say what the people of God need to hear, which is you're on board, you're, you're on the train, you're on the right train. Because Catholics need to hear that every once in a while, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's, it's true. I think this is the whole thing. And it, you know, it, all, it goes back even what I was saying in kind of more secular political terms. This is not you know, we don't have to go back 600 years. You know, people, oh, you're trying to bring back medieval Catholicism. And I'm like, well, first of all, a lot of good things about medieval Catholicism. I was going to say, not the point. That, but. Yeah, but like, but, but in any case, no, I'm trying to bring back the Catholicism that would have been that of my grandparents had they been Catholic, um, certainly my great-grandparents and yep. had they been Catholic. And this is not... Um, it's not new. It's the same way, as I said, you know, that people today are completely, I think a lack of understanding of history in general um, can say a lot about how we view things. You know, people today are just, like I said, even, even take a moral issue, forget ecumenism for a second, take a moral issue. Like imagine today, if you were to say that pornography should be illegal, people are horrified. Like you are basically a fascist for saying this. And again, not so long ago, that was enforced law. Like, People, people, yeah, right. We say we've talked about this before. <laughs> people I have. Love blue walls, by the way. Oh yeah, you know me too. I love blue walls. I don't know what it's called in Canada, but same, same thing. Because I know it used, it used to be a thing here. But any, in any case, I, you know, it's it applies to so many things. People have such short memories, and but I agree. I share your frustration that it, you have to look for things, and it and it puts it makes just being a Catholic really hard. You know, and when I talk to people and people ask me things and it's just having to, like, I'll, you know, I have, I have people who message me or whatever and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm, I really want to become Catholic. I'm learning about the faith and I'm seeing totally conflicting things and I'm trying to like, you know, find time to reply to people and, you know, tell them like, hey, this is a reliable source. Here's why this is this here. It, it you have to become this, like, I, I feel like people have to know so much. And I've talked about this on the show before and I've written about this before. I hate, hate, hate that you've had to be able to sift through all this stuff in order to find clarity. And, and yeah, it's in, a, in a way it's simple. I wish the answer I could just give half the time is just read things, you know, preferably, um, preferably before like the 1950s, even just to be on the safe side, but you know, read things before the council is usually pretty good advice. I mean, you might get some, some, um, there are certain things that were starting to creep in because as we said, neither of us hold to the, you know, Vatican II started everything bad in the church nonsense either. Of course not. But you know, 
you can find this, you know, there was a reason Pius X was, you know, writing against modernism in what, 1917. But right. anyways, you know, you, but, but still, you know, you, you look back at these things and there's still an, a necessary understanding of you have to be able to, you know, pick out the authority of certain documents and all this. And I just think to myself, why would anyone want to convert to this? Why? And, and that, if that is, that, if that was the goal of ecumenism and of Vatican II and of the new mass and all these things, it's not working. Why would anyone want to convert to a religion that won't tell them what it believes? Amen to that. Like, and you know, and we say, you know, and we end up left with, you know, well, you should convert because of the Eucharist. It's like, well, that's great. But if the Eucharist isn't, isn't really the body and blood of Christ and isn't do any reverence, why bother? If the Eucharist is, is something that can be given to people in an objective state of mortal sin, why bother? If the Eucharist can be given to Protestants, why bother? You know, and it's sad and it's, um, it needs to be fought, as you said, in humility. And we need to just, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to take up, but you know, it's, I, I really hope that with this show and with other stuff that we both do in writing and things that we can help to put people in the right direction of where to find the traditional teachings and stuff. And that, and then from there, you know, we have, we have a duty by our baptism to, to be able to answer for the hope that is in us, you know, and to be able to teach the faith on some level to the people we encounter. So mm-hmm. got to do it. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. Um, it's been a pleasure. Pray for Steph, pray for her, and her family. pray for me. Um, we certainly need it. We'll be praying for you. Um, This has been Unapologetics, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you.